Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. Some of the stories we're looking at this week include compliance and complexity. How do you deal with it in your compliance program? The SEC gives two whistleblowers a premium for reporting internally before disclosing to regulators wither Sitco, as Sitco is now under FCPA investigation. The Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission extends the commitment of management to do business in compliance and ethically. What about managing anti-corruption compliance under the EU's GDPR? Is Exxon evil? Jacqueline Jaeger certainly thinks so. Mike Volkoff has a four-part series on sanctions compliance program. Why is compliance a critical in the daily changing Trump trade wars? Why a necessary evil does not necessarily constitute effective compliance? ESG screening underscores challenges in third-party risk management. We review the five-part podcast series I did this week with Eric Feldman. I will be in Boston next week for a masterclass, so I hope you can attend. And Affiliated Monitors is doing a roundtable. We link to both. This is Tom Fox. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network and now C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance, together with Jay Rose and Mr. Monitors for This Week in FCPA, episode 157, for the week ending June 7th, 2019, that we are finally on iTunes edition. As the Astros continue their decimation of AL West opponents, Jay, having won eight of nine on this road trip, we are finally celebrating having our own iTunes show. Yay, team. But there's lots of uh, good compliance and ethics stories this week, so uh, you want to just hop right into it? Definitely. Uh First article up we have this week is something that both you and um, our good friend Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, wrote about. And you each took a look at the uh, ongoing Boeing 737 MAX crash issue. Uh, Matt took a real deep dive and went in taking a look at how um, the situation at Boeing was that many of the different groups were siloed. And unfortunately, the company was not talking to each other. And uh, this kind of just set up a perfect storm for uh, any type of risk situation. And you had engineers making decisions, submitting things to the FAA. People uh, were doing, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say a half-assed job. They thought they were doing their job, but they really weren't doing a job at communicating with each other. You decided to take a little bit of a different look at it, and you liken this uh, New York Times article that happened over the weekend 
above the fold on the right-hand side. You likened it to reading about Walmart's alleged FCPA issues in Mexico and South America. So did you want to jump off a little bit more and talk about the significance of what you saw in what's happening at Boeing? Sure. So the um, the thing that struck me, Jay, is, is Matt was absolutely correct uh, that this was a siloed, uh, a problem of uh, siloization, if I can use that word. But uh, I found some uh, other uh, problems that uh, Boeing had as well. And it uh, started with, uh, it really in my mind, uh, with the silos, uh, lack of training, lack of training of both Boeing employees and lack of training for external employees. Uh, Boeing has really yet to admit they made a mistake. Um, the uh, point uh, at entry or point of uh, issue is something called a uh, MCAS, which uh, stands for Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System. And that's a safety system. And the way it was designed, it had a two-point sensor because it read two different things. And they decided in their infinite wisdom that uh, it only needed to read one, have one reading. And so they did, got rid of the second sensor. Well, the problem on an airplane, if you have no backup and the primary system fails, uh, you're in a world of hurt. And uh, it, it's clear they had failure uh, in both crashes. It's not clear what the cause of that failure was. So uh, that was uh, yet another problem. The, um, uh, I was, uh, I don't know if shocked was the right word, but, um, perhaps dismayed that to save on training costs of rolling out a new product, Boeing simply said, well, we didn't change it on this part of the safety front. So we don't need to tr train pilots on it. And then in an absolutely stunning move, they actually removed the information about what to do from the pilot's manual. So even if a pilot had time to look it up after uh, uh, the sensor light went on, he would find nothing in there to guide him through what to do. So pilots were really uh, in in pretty difficult position here. And and then they, Boeing compounded it even further by saying, well, you know, our our backup control here is pilots, and they'll just figure it out. Well, you had pilots who weren't trained on it. You had pilots who couldn't read on it because it was removed from the uh, manual and all the other things that Matt had. So it was just a, a series of steps. And I really thought it was a great lesson from the um, compliance perspective on why you need to have all of those things. As to the um, silo nature of the problem, interestingly, Jay, uh, this week uh, there was an, or in this issue of the Harvard Business Review was an article on uh, uh, breaking down silos. And it wasn't breaking them down in a vertical manner. It was a cross-horizontal uh, uh, breaking down of silos. So I followed up my uh, original blog post with a second blog post on a potential solution. So I thought, I thought that was a prescient time. Uh, we had an interesting whistleblower case, uh, Jay. Actually, uh, one case where two whistleblowers were awarded uh, tips and shared a $3 million reward obviously a, a relatively low award for a whistleblower, but the key, Jay, was that it received a bump or a premium because the whistleblower reported internally first, the whistleblowers. 
Um, and then they uh, uh, gave the information to the government authorities. It was not clear if they originally gave it to the Securities and Exchange Commission or even if the information was given under questioning by another agency. Nevertheless, uh, the SEC went out of their way to acknowledge that the whistleblowers had, uh, quote, showed great tenacity by repeatedly reporting internally and advocating for the firm to disclose the violative conduct and remedy the attendant investor harm. So the SEC is clearly trying to send a message here, and we cite to uh, once again Matt. Uh, Matt wrote a great blog post on it, and it was a uh, story was broken as usual by Eric Casson over at the uh, FCPA blog. So Sitco um, was named as a part of the latest Petavesa um, employee settlement, and this was really the first time I had seen Sitco named as a entity which um, was involved uh, in bribery and corruption around Petavesa. So I noted that in a blog post and then said that Sitco was in uh, deep trouble around FCPA. And lo and behold, the next day it was announced the government had sent Sitco and um, subpoena. So I think this opens up an entire new world of hurt for Sitco. Sitco is 100% owned by Petavesa. So it's uh, going to be interesting to see how much the government really works to punish Sitco for uh, the sins that it's engaged in at the behest of its owner. It's really a mess, um, and uh, I think it's going to be fodder for a lot of uh, FCPA conversations going forward, Jay. So uh, just coincidentally, you and I are going to be in Boston next week, and uh, hopefully maybe for the blog we'll take a picture uh, with the Sitco sign behind us, which is always viewed over the left field wall. And uh, when I was thinking about the Sitco sign, it made me think of a, a line from Bruce Springsteen's Jungle Land that he says, they'll meet neath that giant Exxon sign that brings us fair city lights. So uh, <clears throat> just a little bit of music folly. The other thing I don't know if you mentioned, but um, we finally have something from Sam Rubenfeld at his new gig. Uh, what is the information about Karen Brief? Well, Karen Brief, uh, Sam uh, works for a business intelligence firm, and he's bringing his considerable writing and editorial or editing skills to help uh, really put together the information uh, for consumption by the people who utilize the service. And also, they have a very active social media presence. Uh, Sam's not quite as, as active as he was at the Wall Street Journal, but uh, he's writing a lot of articles. And this one uh, uh, I cited to him because it uh, explained the subpoena and what it might mean for Sitco going forward. So it's really going to be – they're really in a world of hurt. So, Tom, um, next up you've got a story about the Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission on extending the commitment of management to do business in compliance and ethically. What's that one about? So um, the Malaysian, um, as you correctly noted, Anti-Corruption Commission – M-A-C-C, or the MAC, uh, um, has, uh, really wants to put forward a, a shared commitment literally through Southeast Asia to focus on anti-corruption. And they issued guidance on adequate procedures, and they had a really interesting acronym, J-TRUST, T-R-U-S-T, T for top-level commitment, R for risk assessment, U for undertake control measures, S for systemic review, and T for training and communication. Uh, you know, that leaves out third parties in M&A. But uh, other than that, I thought it was a nice little way to, to think about 
certainly uh, the five steps or at least five steps of a compliance program. Um, Jay, is Exxon evil? Okay. Well, I, I really can't comment on it, but I'll tell you, um, you, you kind of took me off surprise because this is an even, so I will try to do it. But there's an article that our colleague uh, Jacqueline Jager has. It was in uh, this week's Compli- Compliance Week, and she uh, wants to know, as the 11th largest publicly company in the world and second largest in the energy sector with a catastrophically destructive carbon footprint, Exxon could easily be a leader in climate change uh, efforts. Uh, having funded multi-million dollar propaganda campaigns for decades, Mo- ExxonMobil is t- talking heads, are practice at telling anybody who will listen, employees, customers, regulars, regulators, exactly what they want to hear. So, Do you want to so, Yeah, Jay, a couple of things. First of all, um, kudos to uh, Dave LaFort and Jacqueline, uh, Jacqueline for writing this, but Dave publishing a really, a truly an opinion piece in Compliance Week. Uh, typically, that's not something that we see there. Um, this really is <laughs> full opinion. Jacqueline makes clear it's her opinion, and um, but that's not something we'd seen. So uh, kudos to both of them for uh, and Dave for having the courage to do it. So the um, the thing I don't understand, Jay, uh, uh, from an economic basis is that if energy companies fight climate change and if they fight conservation efforts, eventually we will run out of energy. And if they don't fight it and then uh, embrace it, both conservation and climate change, it occurs to me that their energy stocks may go on forever, or at least a lot longer than uh, if they pump, pump, drill, baby, drill. So I've never quite uh, understood that. But uh, you were teed up to talk to us about managing anti-corruption compliance under the GDPR. What uh, what say about that, Jay? Yeah, so this comes to us from the Global Corruption blog, and um, I'm going to take a shot at the name Ruta Mirazakatye. And uh, basically, uh, the jumping-off point in this piece was that uh, a year ago in May 2018, the GDPR uh, came into practice. And one of the things that uh, is now being looked at a year back in retrospective is that there are certain issues within doing anti-corruption compliance that really squarely fall right in the purview of the general data protection uh, laws. And what happens is the GDPR may have an impact on how investigations are conducted, and that's because, number one, the processing of personal data is lawful only if one of two strict standards is met. First, processing can be lawful if the person whose data is being collected provides the consent. Second, processing can be lawful if there is some other legitimate basis. So where this will come into play is both internal investigations and due diligence, but what happens now is what happens if you go to a third-party vendor who's doing due diligence? So the article does a real good job going down the rabbit hole. And, uh, you know, it's just the whole GDPR thing is, uh, you know, really based on personal information, things like what trade union you might belong to, things that are of a very personal um, matter. 
And if you are doing your anti-corruption diligence correctly, you're all, it's okay for you to look at this information, but you have to really deal with the right to be forgotten and expunge that information as soon as you're done with it. So um, uh, Mike Bokoff has another series um, this week following his three-part series on auditing your investigation protocol. He has a four-part series on sanctions compliance. It's not com- um, you want to just uh, maybe tease it out for us a little bit, Jay? Yeah, I, you know, Mike does not um, <clears throat> take words lightly like a game changer. And uh, in the first part one of four, he says, if you follow my blog, you know I'm not one to embrace hyperbole. So forgive me for stretching a little here, but the OFACT framework for sanctions compliance programs is a game changer. And then he goes on to explain why. And a lot of these things in terms of the uh, sanction compliance is are already included in your uh, ethics and compliance program if you are have one and if you have been awake over the past few years. So OFAC's framework is based on five essential components, management commitment, risk assessments, eternal control, testing and audit, and training. And in the different parts, Mike goes along and really takes a deep dive and looks at areas that uh, working with your SCP, your uh, sanctions compliance program, would pretty much dovetail and fall into line with what you're currently doing from an ethics and compliance perspective. But he also takes a look at a couple differences where the information diverged. So parts one through three are up and four should be up tomorrow. But if Mike Volkov says it's a game game changer. I take a look at it. You know, I couldn't agree with you more, Jay. And what uh, uh, struck me about it was uh, the use of best practices compliance programs. Now we have one from the Treasury Department. And this, uh, uh, whether it's uh, intentional or not, seeing the Department of Justice put these out, I think only emphasizes the need for rigorous compliance programs uh, mature compliance professionals to oversee these programs. And I think companies are going to get the message that compliance is the answer. So uh, next up, uh, I'm anxious to hear what this one's about, but the title is very interesting. FedEx misrouted Huawei packages after changes to internal protocols. What went down here? So um, for the lar- world's largest shipping company, to have a package be misdelivered, you know, sometimes that happens, Jay. But now when you overlay Huawei, the U.S. government, the Chinese government, and the trade war directed against not only China, but specifically against Huawei, you've got a lot of moving parts. And it appears that FedEx made an incorrect decision on uh, some packages that were to be shipped to Huawei. It's not clear from the article how many, but it may be less than five um, uh, packages. And the packages were not sent from the sender to Huawei. They were sent from the sender and delivered to uh, FedEx's corporate headquarters in Memphis, Tennessee. The uh, This was an admitted mistake by FedEx, and they delivered them to uh, the proper end uh, receiver in China. One might think uh, that it was really much ado about nothing. But, of course, uh, when Huawei, China, and the U.S. is involved, uh, we can't hope for that anymore under this administration. And now 
Huawei uh, may bring illegal action against uh, FedEx. Uh, the Chinese government is investigating uh, FedEx. And my fear, Jay, is this tit-for-tat uh, idiotic trade war that uh, the Trump administration has declared on literally all of China. It's only going to – I mean, the Chinese are going to respond in kind, respond in kind. And uh, they're going to start investigating and uh, uh, American companies and – uh, as we learned a long time ago in the uh, GlaxoSmithKline case, wherever you want to be under investigation, in trial or in jail in China is not it. So uh, it, it would seem to have been an incredible much ado about nothing. But in this, uh, under the, the glare of uh, the Trump administration, unfortunately, it's uh, much ado about something. And that's uh, uh, much ado for FedEx. Well, we'll have to see what develops there. Um, next up, we've got an article from Mary Bennett that's on the Navix Global website. And uh, she takes a look at some of the key findings in Navix Global's inaugural definitive corporate compliance benchmark report. And uh, the first number that she throws out there is that, uh, you know, what do you want first, the good news or the bad news? So she gives us the good news. 31% of compliance professionals believe that their organization is ethical all the time. So 31%, big number, really good, right? Subtract that from 100, you get 69% of the organizations, more than two-thirds, who feel that their companies aren't always ethical in the eye of in-house compliance professionals. Uh, there are further numbers which she shares, but basically – I would say the research uh, really seconds the information that we've seen the past several years from Ethisphere, taking a look at that there really is a positive correlation between companies that talk the talk and believe in ethics and compliance and those companies who are more reactive and only begrudgingly do this or think of compliance being a necessary evil. So the numbers are pretty striking, but uh, the message is clear that uh, if, ma if management, and specifically meaning if your compliance function really wants to make an argument with management, that there are enough data points and benchmarks out there and enough, unfortunately, recidivists to make the case that you should spend the money before the accident happens. So next up, Jay, we had an article from Brian Alster. Brian is uh, over at um, Dun & Bradstreet. He's the head of their uh, global head of supply and compliance. And he wrote an article about uh, the difficulty of uh, supply chain professionals uh, around ESG screening and third-party risk management. And this has become, uh, a, um, uh, I think, a, a growing uh, area of not only uh, regulatory scrutiny, but also internal company scrutiny because they're struggling with how to have a viable, uh, uh, vibrant ESG policy and uh, also comply with anti-bribery, anti-corruption laws. As um, many ESG programs will not really look at second, third, fourth, or fifth tier recipients of the money. They may do a screening of the direct counterparty, but once it goes beyond that, uh, there may not be any. So it's um, really uh, a an important issue because of the importance of ESG. And investors, customers, 
consumers, employees want to do business with companies that are ethical, that uh, have good governance, that have robust ESG programs. Uh, but that means you have to to maybe look at uh, a group of uh, people you've done business with literally through your ESG component. And that would, of course, include your CSR component um, going forward. So uh, interesting article from Brian. It, it really uh, um, crystallizes many of the challenges faced by the supply chain professional that people in uh, the anti-bribery, anti-corruption space have faced for some time, Jay. So this week, um, my affiliated monitors colleague, uh, Eric Feldman, got together with you. <clears throat> and in one of your five-part series, you took a deep dive into the uh, updated 2019 DOJ guidance. So what are some of the things that you and uh, Eric discussed? Well, first of all, Jay, this uh, podcast series has been incredibly well-received. I don't know if you've read the uh, commentary and and uh, uh, comments by people on the postings on LinkedIn, but uh, this has been a real hit. And Eric, of course, did a great job, took a deep dive into uh, the three components. Is it well-designed? Is it effectively implemented? Are you uh, actually uh, doing business uh, under your program, and is it working? Uh, and then he gave his thoughts on why this document, the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs 2019 Guidance, is so significant. And Eric really came down on a couple of uh, a couple of key points, I thought. First of all, uh, Eric's ex-government guy. So I think he has a, an insight that when the government speaks, uh, they mean it, uh, and you need to listen. And for the compliance professional, our, our regulator is the Department of Justice, although they're prosecutors, of course, the Securities and Exchange Commission. So when the DOJ gives us information, it's an important piece of information to utilize for your compliance program. Number two was the emphasis on culture. Uh, I can't tell you how many times that word was used, but it was really uh, used throughout. In the 2017 evaluation, I think the emphasis was on the operationalization of your compliance program. Here, the emphasis, at least a emphasis, was on culture. Uh, assessing culture, measuring culture, um, uh, changing culture, monitoring culture, uh, all of that. So, um, uh, the culture aspect. And then Eric had an insight I thought was uh, very prescient, which was that companies may actually have more power than they think in the early stages of an investigation, not from the investigative perspective, but from the remediation perspective. And that if they take the evaluation document and really use that as a roadmap put it together with a Binkowski memo from October 2018, and you've got a fabulous roadmap that can lead you, one, uh, to help prevent getting a monitor, but more importantly, perhaps lead you to, if not a full declination, a significant discount in your fine and penalty. So um, some really great insights from Eric, as always. Uh, it's a ton of fun. We've uh, posted this week on all the sites. Uh, tomorrow it goes up um, for the last post. We've got it posted in on iTunes and uh, the Compliance uh, Podcast Network for binge listeners. Uh, so take a look. It's a pretty pretty valuable tool. Now, did you also have an ebook drop this week on Corporate Compliance Insights? I did. I um, uh, 
uh, Sarah Haddon and the gang over at CCI published my ebook uh, where I took uh, the guidance, uh, Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs 2019 guidance, and I used it, Jay, as um, a operating guide for your compliance program. So I, I took each one of the three prongs, um, is your program effective, uh, implemented, designed effectively, uh, well, excuse me, well-designed, effectively implemented, and working. And so uh, under all of the questions, under each of those three prongs, I broke the questions out and then gave some, uh, some of my thoughts around how you could put a program together in place that would adequately answer those questions, perhaps what I, my interpretation of those questions meant. So as usual, Jay, uh, you know, I try to write for uh, the, com- the compliance practitioner in the, nut- in the nuts and bolts style that I'm uh, so well known for as the nuts and bolts guy. Um, when I'm not evangelizing, uh, um, and I hope that uh, it's a very useful document. One thing I did do, Jay, was I took uh, the full text of the 2017 guidance and and did a uh, section by section comparison with the 2019 guidance. So that's a um, a table at the end that I think is a pretty useful comparison. So uh, hopefully uh, users will find it useful. Um, you can't beat the price because it's free. So, uh, but it's available only on Corporate Compliance Insights. Uh, so go over there, check it out, download a copy, uh, and uh, hopefully it will help you uh, going forward. And uh, as we said earlier in the podcast, um, <clears throat> we're both going to be in Boston next week. Tom, why don't you tell the folks about your uh, Compliance Master class that you're bringing on the road? Right. So uh, this is the class for you if you're a compliance professional. If you're listening to this, I've got uh, two slots left. So please uh, uh, take a look at it. I've linked to the uh, registration and information. And then um, I'm pleased to, uh, really honored to be a part of an affiliated monitors event. Do you want to tell us about that, which is occurring on Thursday, uh, June 13th? Yeah, uh, we are going to have a compliance uh, luncheon roundtable and joining Eric and uh, Tom is the founder of Affiliated Monitors, Vindy Siani. And we're going to have some great food, some stimulating conversation. And uh, just because it's the right thing to do, we're going to continue the conversation about the 2019 DOJ guidance. And uh, I'm sure we will get some great input uh, from the folks who are attending. There's a nice, real diverse crowd of compliance professionals from the Boston area. And we have a couple slots left, too. So if anybody wants to... uh, check into that. Uh, definitely uh, look at the show notes and there's a link that you can RSVP or email me at my affiliated monitors uh, email. So I think, Tom, besides uh, uh, Houston just going crazy, uh, you know, I'm not going to go overboard, but the Sox just swept a series from the Royals. And you know, I guess maybe I should have said the lowly Royals, but uh they are now going to play uh, – they're in a stretch of something like 17 games in 16 days. There's a doubleheader on Saturday against um, Tampa Bay. So there's an opportunity for them to make up a little bit of ground. And then you and I will have an opportunity uh, to go see the Rangers on Wednesday. And I believe this will be your first time at Fenway Park. Is that correct? That's correct. So I think uh, we are going to have – we've had a, a full week that we just reported on, and we're going to have a great week in Boston. So 
On behalf of Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 157, the week ending June 7, 2019, we're on iTunes editions. Have a great weekend, and we'll be in touch with you next week from Boston. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you've enjoyed this week, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Don't forget, if you're in Boston and you want the best compliance nuts and bolts class around, check out my master class. I'd look love to have you there. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network and C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.